Warning, Star Trek from the holodeck contains adult language and discussions. If you're easily offended, do not continue to listen. Walk it alone! Fire! Holodeck 3 program is reinstated. Open sesame! Commander Klingon vessel. We are energizing transport of him. Now. Hello, welcome everyone to Star Trek from the l- the holodeck. I forgot the name of our show for a second. <laughs> you, you almost lost yourself like a uh, Boimler <laughs> in yeah. this one. Yeah. Hey, did you shift yourself in your chair? You seem uh, out of frame now on the see. camera here. Try Go that ahead. Again. We're going to do some uh, production work live on the air right now. Go ahead and move to camera right just a bit. Camera okay. right. Camera right. Camera right. Oh, yeah. There you go. Come on, David. Are you losing your uh, your film knowledge? <laughs> there you go. There you go. All right. Thank you, everyone. That's a bit better. Yeah. See, I have to keep David in check from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> all right. If you're new to our discussions here, you can find all of our shows, the podcast version of this broadcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. Our preferred feeds are iTunes and Spotify. Just simply search from the holodeck. And if you are a YouTube type of person, you can catch our live video feeds on our network YouTube page, youtube.com slash Rayman Digital. Be sure to click subscribe and give us a thumbs up. But I will warn you, I am ugly and I do not want to make you get freaked out. I don't want to freak you out. We don't have the the glories of the holodeck. Yeah, just like (laughs) the last episode of Lower Decks was appalling and perverse. That's what my face is. So be warned. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we are here today once again to discuss Star Trek Lower Decks Season 3, Episode 8, Crisis Point 2, Paradoxus. Is that the the name of the episode? Yeah. What did you say, Mike, in the last episode? Ups and downs this season. Yeah, ups and downs, because we went from one of the most shittiest episodes I've ever seen to one of the greatest, Greatest if not greatest, episode of Lower Decks to date. What is going on in that writing room this year, Dave? It's just, is it like, are, are they are, are they having like uh, high brain foods with lots of nutrition on one night and then they go out and get drunk the next, next day, day and they come into the writing room and they have no brain cells to write because it is up and down this season. It's almost like, I don't know what it is. It's like Mike McMahon decides to give his writing team the day off after an episode and basically says, Hey, I'll just bring in an intern to do this. One there's, no there's no there's median. There's no median. Yeah. There's just highs and lows. It is literally the 2021 and 2022 stock market. That's what it is. It, it feels like it because like, especially like we went from a very light character driven episode in in peanut hampers episode to suddenly I hate that name too. I just we, hate it. We have like absolutely the most amazing character development in Tendi, a slightly Rutherford, mm-hmm. definitely Boimler. Yeah. And even like in, in uh Mariner because like Mariner has to play a role that she is not used to, which is the supporting role. Yeah. And it's it was so interesting seeing 
her grow into that because like we've and connecting it narratively to her throughout the entire season where she's trying to be a better person. And it connects so well to the, the deep space nine episode where she's trying to, she's trying to be a better person and be supportive because she wants to be like in the deep space nine episode, Mm -hmm. she wanted to be with that one, uh, uh, her one lover at that point. And in this one, she's just trying to be a good friend because she wants to support Boimler and she wants, she's, it's like so hilarious because she sees him falling and she's the one that basically saying, no, 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 it's good. I mean, I, I think I like this story. I, the, the, the ideas sound and it's so different getting it from Mariner's point of view. Meanwhile, the neurotic one is Boimler, but what's so amazing about this episode is like, the neurotic, the the neurotic, the the craziness of Boimler is so relatable that it's like he had an existential crisis. And who who doesn't really have the one moment in their life where they go, "What the fuck is the meaning of life?" One moment, and that's every day of my life, David. Yeah. I wake up like, "Why am I here? Why am I what here? is the meaning of this?" And then, and then on top of that, dude, that twist in the end, again, Mike McMahon setting up things for the future. Yeah. So, yeah, just as a reminder, let's kind of set the stage here. Uh, this is a sequel of sorts to Crisis Point, The Rise of Vindicta, which <laughs> I think is probably my favorite episode of Lower Decks, possibly until this point. I'm not quite sure. I, I would have to, honestly, I need to watch the ascending episode again where that one officer ascended. I love that episode. <laughs> I love that episode. Yeah. And the badgie episode, the crisis point part one, the deep space nine episode, and then crisis point two here. Paradoxes. You need to watch those five episodes and see which one's the best because those five episodes are some of the strongest writing of lower decks. I'll so, go. I'll go out on a limb and basically ahead of you and say I think I like paradoxes the most because there's a lot of smarts. There's a lot of smarts here. at play going on in this episode, and honestly, this truly felt like a Star Trek episode. Yeah, and and we'll get into that, Dave, because you're right. There's a. I don't know if I'm going to be able to word it the same way as I did before the show started. It's hard to put this episode into into words it took the writing cues of star trek and what it does you know social commentary right is one yes philosophy understanding or dissecting the human condition which let's just encompass that all under philosophy to simplify things And it took those ingredients, those raw ingredients that truly make up the foundation of any Star Trek series. And they, in a very meta, self-referential way, in a way that they're aware of their show, they're Mm -hmm. aware of Star Trek, they're aware of fans, and they used it in the same way Star Trek uses those aspects, the tropes of Star Trek, to say something. They use that. They say something about Star Trek as a fandom, Star Trek fans, and its place in fandom, which that's not easy to do. No. 
and they were able to do that. And and not only that, they have to make it digestible to the audience because they're doing it in a humor way. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's people out there that didn't really catch all of that because you're right. This episode works as just simply a fun episode as well. But when you really, I watched this episode twice because the first time I watched it, I was like, okay, this is a good episode. It has something to say. It's, it's, it's just written well. There's a lot of character development. But then I watched it again because there was something else elusive. And when I watched it the second time, I purposely didn't pay attention to the character development aspects and just focused on what the episode is saying. Which is something you and I talk about a lot when when you talk about what a start what a what an episode of whatever is about. It's not the plot. The plot's not what the story is about. What is being said? What is that's what the story is about? And that's what I was looking for. Um, I was looking for true symptomatic meaning because it just adds layers to your narrative. I mean, like an example I think I could think of is when I think is. No, it is. It's Boimler when he uh, when he talks uh, about the chronogami, and he tells uh, he tells Freeman that the chronogami. Uh, I think I have it right here. Yeah, uh, Freeman just explained that the chronogami can be used to destroy any point in history. Mariner then basically says, "What does that? It makes an alternate, alternate, uh, alternate cinematic timeline that runs concurrently to our own, but with like different people." playing younger versions of us. And then Teddy Basie laughs and says, says scientifically, that would be a bit of a reach. Yeah. And it's stuff like that. It's fun because as I said, it's, it's commenting on itself and it's commenting on the fandom in this like dynamic phenomenological type of aspect where it's talking about the experiences of Star Trek and all shapes and form. And they use that whole meta angle to really do something like that, like critique itself. It's literally critiquing with these comments. It's not just tongue in cheek necessarily. It, there's definitely some tongue in cheek there, but it's also some, like, some relevant critique on itself, which you don't always see that. So let's get official here. These episodes, these crisis point episodes predominantly take place in the holodeck. And if we are talking and, and if we are talking in universe, meaning canon, they function as hollow novels. Yes. Uh, the idea behind these episodes work on the same meta level, as I was uh, saying a few moments ago, that Lower Decks operates on, but it delved much deeper, or at least these uh, Crisis Point episodes. They delve deeper into the meta-style narratives that effectively break the fourth wall because as far as nostalgia is concerned, they look back. That's what these episodes do. They look back and are even more self-referential than a typical Lord Dex episode because there's an argument to be made that pretty much every single episode of Lord Dex is making a comment on itself. But this took it up and designed an entire narrative to make a comment and somewhat of a critique on itself and all of its forms, whether that be fandom and all of that that's included such yeah. as fan fiction. I mean, you even had a moment where Mariner <laughs> yes. says that this is like fan fiction Fan fiction. So they're fun. They're fun episodes. They are written like Star Trek feature films and they follow similar beats by pretty much working within a template of an actual movie. 
that's what this episode did specifically. For, for the most part, it was doing the beats of Star Trek Generations, for the most part. So in this episode, we get more of a world within a world. Yeah. By the continuation of the so-called Vindectiverse. So they're creating a verse in a verse. A universe in a universe. It's meta-inception extravaganza. When you're dealing with episodes like this, it feels more like a love letter to the franchise. In a sense, it functions, as I was saying, as a commentary on the relationship between fan and franchise. Yes. So what did this episode do? It borrows heavily from Star Trek Generations. The plot, as well as the callbacks, gives that away. But also the overall aesthetic is reminiscent of Generations. For example, the three, and not just aesthetics, but also some of its it's inclusions of character and character types. You have the three Romulan sisters, which yes. are clearly mirroring the Dura sisters. The Dura sisters, yes. They're not as hot, though. I mean, as a kid, I was... because oh, I love the Dura everyone sisters, Everyone knows I, I love evil women. And I, when I first saw the Dura sisters in the 90s... I think their I, boobs were the I, first thing you saw. I was like, oh, my God. Why is everyone appalled by you? I love you. you I love you. Please. <laughs> I love, I don't know why. Didn't they I, lick Worf in the face a couple times? I'm like, yes, please. Yes. I will. Worf, don't pretend that They were dirty, you. man. They were dirty, but yeah. we loved them oh, anyway. Yeah. They were great. So the Romulan sisters weren't nearly as hot as the Duras sisters. They didn't have that animalistic sexual behavior that us sickos really <laughs> like. <laughs> uh, there were also some allusions to uh, Star Trek, Vo- uh, the voyage home. Star Trek yes. 4. And then also Star Trek, the final frontier. And you know me, when it comes to episodes of Star Trek, I'm all about theme and what the writers are trying to say and, and what are, whatever they may be doing, hopefully at the same time adds to character development because mm-hmm. you can have all the fun you want, especially with a show like Lower Decks, but also give us that much needed development. With this episode, there's an underlining existentialism in the same fashion as Generations. Boimler is struggling with the death of his duplicate. Yeah, William. <laughs> Picard was struggling with the death of his brother and his nephew. And if you remember, he didn't know what he needed to do any longer when it came to his family line. Because essentially with them dead, he was the last, was the last of his bloodline. So there's a little bit of existentialism there because he lost the meaning of his life. The meaning of his life was to explore, to be a part of Starfleet, to be the captain of a ship. That was his meaning. That was his purpose in life. And suddenly, you know, they threw in that, that, that wrench there into his life and it caused him to doubt his purpose his and purpose. his meaning and whether or not he's doing what he should be doing. And that's the same thing they did with Boimler. And I thought that was such a nice touch because it works with Boimler's development thus far the well, fact that he's always looking for that meaning and that purpose and a sense of belonging and for this for something like this to happen it, it actually works for a character uh for this type of character well the the point when you know we had a really fun really engaging episode up to the point and then when they get to the point between the talk between mariner and uh ransom when Ransom tells Mariner, hey, did Boimler actually tell you what's going on? And she doesn't say anything. She says that he's just being moody. And then Ransom drops the bomb. 
oh, about his, you know, the transporter brother of his that basically died. And then suddenly the episode went from fun and engaging to all of a sudden, we're going to throw some serious overtones now mm-hmm. at you. Yeah. And they did it so successfully because in a lot of ways, there's some bad Star Trek episodes out there that have tried to do that. And it just destroys an episode. It doesn't always work. It doesn't work because you're going from fun, happy, go lucky to all of a sudden, let's get serious. Yeah. Here, they did it so seamlessly and they ran it parallel with each other that it just, it, it elevated the episode up. It made you feel like the episode was just that more, had much more impact and a much more punch to it. There's something about existentialism that just works and probably because it's a, it's a branch of philosophy, which is in the DNA of Star Trek to begin with, but existentialism as a way to understand is, is definitely a part of, you know, the philosophical branches and it it just works. It feels so it's such a perfect fit for, for Star Trek when they utilize it. Obviously we don't want all of our Star Trek, the entire season to be an existential crisis. (laughs) Yeah. Because that, then that would probably change the tone of Star Trek. But even when you look at Star Trek enterprise, um, you know, every, Every series of Star Trek usually takes, in my opinion, except maybe Strange New Worlds, it kind of knocked it out the, the park pretty, pretty quick. Quickly. But you always have that one definitive episode that is the signal for its impending greatness. Voyager did it with Neelix when he lost his faith in the afterlife. Yes. And from that moment on, Voyager became amazing. Amazing. Uh, then you had with Enterprise, it was after the destruction of Florida when... Archer halfway through just became existential and lost sight of himself, what Starfleet was supposed to stand for. And he starts questioning that. Yes. Because they suddenly find themselves seeking a species that want to annihilate humanity. And what are they going to do when they get to them? Exactly. They're going to kill them. Are you going to fight them? What do you do? That's not what Starfleet's supposed to do. That's not not what I'm supposed to do, you know, meaning Archer. So you always have those moments of existentialism that really kicks off a series. And that's something that this show, or uh, I should say Lower Decks, a specific episode, really did to capture those moments of excellence when it comes to the existential side of Star Trek. Well, that's why I'm glad you brought up the Generations example where Picard, Picard's story, and I'm going to say something that, that might be controversial to people, but honestly, Generations to me is where Picard's story gets very interesting because when he gets that message that his brother and his nephew die, mm-hmm. the idea of uh, an existential, uh, existential crisis for Picard at that point was more powerful than anything he's ever felt because just like you said, it challenged what he was, what he felt. This is my destiny. I'm supposed to be the captain. I'm supposed to be on that captain's chair. It tied so well with Kirk telling him, you know, don't let them force you out of that chair. Right. But throwing it in parallel in crisis mode, because when his brother and his nephew die, then the question becomes, are you sure this is what you're supposed to be doing? Right. Because now your family lineage is all on you. Yeah. And, and it, it, 
it's one of the things I really do enjoy from Picard is the fact that they carried that on because in Picard, you realize he gave it up because he had to go back to the farm. He had to go back to the vineyard and run the chateau because he is the last one. He is the last of his lineage. He's like Sean Connery in Dragonheart. He is. I am the, I last, am the one. last one. And like, it was amazing. No one's going to catch that reference. <laughs> only, only people as old as me and you are, but like, when Boimler goes through it, it felt so organic because it was understandable because it wasn't Boimler wasn't grieving over the fact of losing a quote unquote family member. He was grieving it was over him. It was about him yeah. because he was like, he kept the, the, the point that I thought was so powerful in a cartoon about being, making funny jokes is Boimler looking at Mariner and saying he should have, he was on Titan. He was, he was doing better than him. And suddenly he snuffed out and then he, and he basically said, what does that mean for me? And I'm like going, wow, that's a really powerful statement by Boimler mm-hmm. because it questions, you know, he was happy being in the lower decks, but look what happened with William. William was on the Titan. He was successful. And in one blink of an eye, he got snuffed out at least to what Boimler thinks. Right. Well, most of us until the ending, until the very end. And then like, when you get to the, when you, when you actually get to that, that is like, for me, one of the crux of great Star Trek storytelling is when you actually have these characters really asking themselves the human question, you know, a, uh, basically what is the meaning of life? Yeah. <laughs> what does God need with a starship? What does God need with a starship? And it's like, I love those moments in Star Trek when that happens because like it, it harkens back to like one of my favorite moments in uh, Star Trek, like the motion picture where Kirk, uh, Kirk and Spock are meeting for the first time in a long, or I thought it was Kirk and uh, Bones meeting in this, in the study of Kirk and Bones looking at Kirk and saying, Hey, don't become like your collection. Yeah. That was Star Trek too. That was Star Trek too. Right. Yeah, yeah. And like, that's one of my favorite moments because that was good. That really made the whole story about Kirk about yeah. the human nature. So that's why, again, that shows us why Mick McMahon does know Star Trek, except for maybe that blunder last episode, <laughs> because he's he's borrowing those moments of Star Trek because that's not what Star Trek's about per se. But some of the the greatest moments of emotion stem from a moment of existentialism that our characters are feeling. And, and that's why this episode also just feels very authentic and sincere. Now, outside of that, the episode mostly is concerned with commentary on fandom arguments as well as its own tongue-in-cheek critiques. Uh, for example, the conflict between Mariner and Boimler about the creation of the holodeck program. <laughs> yes. Mariner insists that it is a bad movie that goes against everything the Vindictiverse stood for sure. and is ruining the franchise. Boiler Boimler rebuttals by saying that he is creating an important examination of the human condition. condition. I hate to <laughs> say that that sounds like something I would say. No, I, when he said that, dude, I'm going, God damn it. Boimler is us. Yeah. Oh, damn yeah. It. Yep. So despite its silliness, the episode actually serves. I would definitely say as an intelligent commentary on fan culture, what it means to be a fan and a reconciliation of sorts. Well, even with like the story of Tindy and Rutherford, I mean, that in itself was also a talk about like fandom and basically how like 
some fans take things really seriously. Some fans don't take it that seriously. And that's yeah. what irritates people. That's right. Yeah. And it's like, that's stuff like that. They took a simple statement with the Tindian Rutherford and just started adding layers onto it. Not only talking about fans, but also, Hey, we're going, we're going to show the depth of their relationship. We're going to show growth in their relationship. How at the very end, Rutherford comes to understand Tendi and, you know, actually apologizes as shoot. I didn't know that you really took it seriously. And Rutherford telling Tindy that she, he would be really happy to be, have her as his captain. Right. That's what's interesting about this episode because it was commenting on, on itself and fan culture. It shows that reconciliation. That's what I was alluding to the fact that, okay, so we can argue, we can all have different views, but at the end of this, we all should just come together and accept that star Trek does mean different things different for different things. people. Yeah. Now that also doesn't forgive the perverseness of the last episode, <laughs> but I get the point. I definitely yes. can agree with the, with the overall statement, the essence of that, of that comment. And if, if, if anything else, also when you get to the big quote, unquote, I, I'm gonna, I'm not even gonna call it an Easter egg, but like the, the, the ending with Sulu, you have George Takei yeah. <laughs> apparently taking the farm of Captain Kirk and George T uh, Sulu owning the farm in Captain Kirk's uh, Wyoming Nexus. That were, oh, where yeah. it is Nexus yeah. Point. Yeah. And I'm like, you're taking the two people who do not get along well. Yeah. We all know. That's, it's, it's pretty embarrassing. It's, it's pretty honestly, embarrassing. We all know. Yeah. But the fact that you br bring those two and you bring them together to, again, showing, hey, we can still all have fun. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's the thing I think was the, the beauty. But that's of, also, beauty of it. it's also, once again, Star Trek commenting on self because yes. we understand, you know, how the fandom argues. Now it's bringing to light another argument that that I, I, it's not a part of the story world, story world per se. When I say story world, I'm talking about the narrative of Star Trek, but in a lot of ways, in a transmedia type sense, much of the off-screen personas, because Star Trek is so big and iconic, especially when you're talking about characters like Sulu and William Shatner, or George Takei and William Shatner, it does, in a sense, craft its own off-screen narrative that yeah. becomes part of the diegesis of star trek whether whether it belongs in canon or not it becomes a part of that landscape and that's why it's so smart it's such a, a smart way to include that aspect that high profile argument where you have george Takei taking william shatner's place william shatner's place I mean, he's literally making a comment on that as well yeah not that you know, of course, Georgia Kane never took William Shatner's place, but I'm just talking about in the sense it, 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 it embodies, it's a good metaphor for their arguments, which is again, embarrassing, embarrassing. It's just, they should, but be, it's just funny. They should be. <laughs> well, first off, just, I'm going to, I'm team. I love George Decay. Yes. He's amazing. Man. And I love William Shatner, but I'm sorry. I'm team William Shatner all day because let's just uh, get a roll call here. and People can agree or disagree in the comment section or on our tweet, Twitter accounts. Um, Shatner doesn't ever say anything like really, yeah. ba really bad. Have you noticed that? He does. He, yeah. he will comment in a very kind of like shrug manner, which is exactly what I would do. If someone's constantly 
talking about me in interviews, tweeting at me after I get off a spaceship and you call me fat. That's what Georgia K did. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Bezos is using him as a fat guinea pig. That's I think that's what he said. Yeah. I, I'm not, please, I'm paraphrasing. I Don't get mad at me. I'm not quoting. But my point is, is that George Takei has a history of saying some pretty foul shit. Yeah. And unbecoming things about William Shatner. And William Shatner always just kind of takes this arrogant stance, but he doesn't really comment on George Takei's appearance, his way of life, whatever that may be. He doesn't do any actual commentary. Yeah, he does. About him. He just says that he's crazy and I don't understand why he's still talking about this. <laughs> I don't know. And, and that's the thing is like nowadays it's like it's. And we're, I'm making the reason why we're even talking about this because this is the perfect episode to talk about this type of stuff. Precisely. This is literally a part of the fan culture. And it is. That's the thing is like people nowadays, even in Star Trek today, they take the side of either to George Takei or William Shatner. And I'm with you. I mean, I don't think George Takei is a bad person. I don't think he's a bad person. I think there might be some sexual frustration there. I think they just need to fuck. I mean, it's, it's probably like 50 plus years of just being backed up. Maybe they're attracted to each other. Just get it out of the way. But just get it out of the way. Just get it out of the way. You know, William Shatner should just go, you know, you do you just want me. He's like, I'm the captain of this ship. I'm the captain of this ship. Let me tongue your hole. Oh. No, 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 Mike, no. Uh, I don't, that's not an image I want to see. I don't want it. I don't want that image. Yeah, no, it's not. Maybe if they were maybe not to be an ageist, but maybe if they were 50 years younger, <laughs> it wouldn't be as disturbing. <laughs> uh, I mean, again, I'm not into homoerotic, you know, eh, maybe sometimes as, for fun, for, <laughs> for kicks fun, and giggles, for, for kicks and giggles. Uh, so stupid. All right, Dave. So you were going to say you were on team who? I'm I'm on team William Shatner just because it, to me, he's been the most professional out of the duo. Yeah. You know, whatever he does on set, that's, that's his, it's not really up to someone to call you out on your manner of professionalism. If that's the way you do your business, if you treat it where you don't fraternize and you don't, or you're protecting your brand, which for years, a little bit of that ego was because I am the captain. Enough of you trying to always step in the limelight. It's me and uh, DeForest Kelly and Leonard Nimoy. Nimoy. We are the draw. And for 30 some years, they were the draw. Yeah. It's changed over time because George Decay has become more popular, I'd say, over the last 15 years because of social media and he's just out there all the time. And also during that time, you know, the fandom has grown to the point to accept all of the characters. Yeah. But back then, you know, people have to understand when it came down to it, who was on top of that call sheet? Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, and William Shatner. You know, it sucks for everybody else. And I know that basically a lot of the gripes, especially when you look at like interviews and everything else, everyone complained that, well, they were underpaid. Well, well George Takei needs to like remember how the Hollywood system works. The Hollywood he system should works. know that. He gets paid more because he's Captain Kirk. Yeah. That's how it exactly. works, people. There's not a equality of pay doesn't operate the way you think in this type of business. It's about who has the biggest star power. Why are people buying tickets? I love Sulu as a character, but if you tried to make a Sulu movie in the eighties without the rest of them, it just wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have worked. Now, maybe a little different with streaming, you know, seeing him as a captain, maybe even that's different. It's a whole other story. But then 
Yeah, right. Can yeah. you imagine? No way. Yeah. I mean, even even uh, even Gene Roddenberry said that it was not that time. It was not the time to actually make Sulu, Ohura, Scotty, all of them basically main players. And I listen, I think George Takei's best performance of all time and all of Star Trek is Star Trek six when he becomes a captain. Yeah, by far. I fucking love him in that role. So good. So convincing. So anyways, all right. So let's wrap this up. Lower decks in an episode like this is, as I said, is being used to do something similar. And that's why. Well, hold on. Let me backtrack. I'm jumping way ahead here. I'm going to get this episode a 90 percent. Because an episode of Lower Decks like this is being used to do something smart. It's doing something similar. uh, It's doing something similar to Star Trek that were, like I said at the beginning of the show, similar in form, um, but for fan culture. It functions and engages with established Star Trek iconography as as well as its semiotics in order to comment on them using the formula of Trek, essentially by inverting the engagement. Typically we engage and comment on Star Trek here. We have Star Trek engaging and commenting on us and itself. That is clever. And my brain hurts when I was writing the notes. I'm like, okay, wait, it's doing this, (laughs) this this, and that. Okay. So it's a, it might even be higher than a 90%. You know what? I'm going to give it a 93%. I, I think it's that good. Which, how do you go from 58% to 93%? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. That's the question that I cannot answer. What about you, Dave? I, I'm in similar score as you. I actually gave this a 95 because it's the highest score I've given season three thus far. Because Deep Space Nine, I know I gave it a 93. But this one was better than the Deep Space Nine one because it did so many things. And just like you said, I appreciate when writing is done intelligently, smartly, and cohesively to the point where basically you can watch this time and time again and keep pulling things out, out, out of it, like brand new things. And I've watched this episode probably about four or five times. And it's like, I keep pulling stuff out. Like one of the other things, the last point I want to make, not only does he do, do that, the brilliant way that he wrote bringing the conf, the idea of bringing conflict together and criticizing Star Trek in a lot of ways, even in the very end with the, with the reveal of William still alive and he joined section 31. What does William do? Why is your badges like all like have to be this color? And he questions it. He questions the, the, the actual idea of section 31. And the lady just looks at him and goes, listen, I could still put you out. (laughs) And it's like, that was smart. That was a great punchline. So interestingly, Dave, this is a guy that we need to keep our eyes open for. Ben Rogers was the writer of this episode. And this is the first episode he has written, but he has been with lower decks for all of its three seasons so far, but he has been just a story editor. I think, I think you got, I think Mike McMahon has, he trained him. He has, I think this is like an apprentice. This This is is the type of guy you put under your wing and say, listen, my friend, you've got some skill here. I'm going to go ahead and, and finesse this talent of yours. Oh, easily. And if that's the case, then yes, because like the fact that 
you jump from a really bad episode, probably the worst in, in Lower Decks uh-huh. history, yeah, to suddenly the best. Yeah. In my opinion, the best. It's good. I think is it, it's... I hate to say that it's like comparing the two writers together because that's it's a little unfair. Right. Especially the last writer of that the last episode, she didn't have a lot of experience. But when you got the skill and you know what you're doing, this is what happens. Yep. Greatness <laughs> happens. Okay, Dave, let's bring this show to an end. I want to thank everyone for listening. Thank you, David. Thank you. Live long and prosper. I couldn't help but notice your pain. My pain? It runs deep. Share it with me. End simulation.